Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by my co-host, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. And Ian and I are joined today by our very special guest, Oz Guinness, who's with us to talk about his latest book from InterVarsity Press, IVP America, called The Great Quest, Invitations to an Examined Life and a Sure Path to Meaning. Oz is the author or editor of more than 30 books, including The Dust of Death. He's a frequent speaker and prominent social critic. He has addressed audiences worldwide from the British House of Commons to the United States Congress to the St. Petersburg Parliament. He is a senior fellow at the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics and was the founder of the Trinity Forum. He's also been a freelance reporter for the BBC and a guest scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Centre for International Studies. Oz has a lifelong passion to make sense of our extraordinary modern world, and Oz is with us together with Ian now. Oz, hi, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Brent. A pleasure to be with you. My grandmother was an ardent Kiwi. Was she so indeed? It was a delight. She came from Auckland, where her father was the mayor of Auckland. Oh, gosh. Right. Okay. What was his name? Do you Button. remember? All things Judge Button. Yes, I, I know. Yep. My grandmother called Button, married my grandfather, who was called Taylor. Right. So there were a lot of jokes at the wedding. <laughs> yes, I can imagine, yes. Now, what is so extraordinary, Oz, about our modern world? Well, where do we start? We're in an extraordinary moment in history with the waning of the West, with Putin striving to present a new Russia, and with the Iranians very close to having a bomb and threatening Israel, and of course, China asserting its dominance in the world. And then you look down and you can see things like singularity, and you can see this is an extraordinary moment for humanity. So whether the Christian faith is true or not is incredibly important. Yes, I seem to feel that we're in the modern West, we've almost cut ourselves off from the past. Is that the case, do you think? Absolutely. Western civilization owes a lot to the Greeks and the Romans and, of course, to the Jews. But it is principally a child of Christendom. And yet, following the French Revolution, following the Enlightenment, the rise of secularism and more radical movements since then, you can see the West has cut itself off from its Christian roots. So the West is essentially a cut flower civilization. But cut flowers don't last, and the West won't last with the loss of its roots. So we're at what's, what's called a civilizational moment, a critical transition moment in the decline. And it either goes on to deeper decline, or there can be a renewal. Why are we committing this, dare I use the word, cultural suicide? But that's what it often feels like to me. Well, I've got a book coming out a little later, and one of the chapters is on the way that Christians have actually caused their own rejection. If you look at the Enlightenment secularism, which is the principal alternative to the Jewish and Christian faith, it has a number of impulses, but the deepest one, we don't want God. So you take the French Revolution, where church and state thrown an altar were in collusion, and were both corrupt and both highly oppressive. So the revolution threw off both. And since then, you can see the radical left in various forms 
uh, Saul's Zenitsyn says, has a hatred for God that is deeper at its heart than even politics and economics. So those of us who follow Sir Jesus have to say with sadness, not only the French Revolution, of course, you take, say, the orphanage scandals in Ireland or the terrible record of the church in Canada with native Canadians or the scandals here in America at the moment. Much of the rejection of the church we have caused, and we've got to ask the Lord's forgiveness. Why is the radical left or the left, why has it become so predominant in so many governments in the Western world? Well, the left or the radical left, I call it the red wave, has a number of uh, roots. So in the 19th century, its greatest impact was actually revolutionary nationalism, Napoleon and so on. Although that influenced even Xi Jinping today and the way he follows the thinker Carl Schmitt. The second great explosion was classical Marxism, revolutionary socialism, communism. And we've countered that, particularly in the Cold War. But what we're facing in much of the English-speaking world today, and certainly Western Europe, is cultural Marxism. And that's different. Coming from Antonio Gramsci and the Frankfurt School and what they've called the long march through the institutions, And so the West rejected classical Marxism mostly, but it's caving in in an alarming rate to cultural Marxism. Are people today in the modern world less interested in thinking about the meaning of life than previous generations was? You would think so. Now, if you look at the, say, the, the Oxford short introduction to the meaning of life, it says it's really only for madmen and comedians. But that is absolutely ridiculous. Meaning underlies everything we do, even the words you and I are using now. If they don't mean anything, our conversation is futile. But every day, a thousand things we do assume meaning. And it'd be absurd to think that our daily conversations and our work requires meaning, but not life itself. So the question is, what helps us understand the universe. It's actually incredibly important. And philosophers who are rejecting the idea, I think they're being too clever by half. Human beings will always want meaning, belonging, and a storyline. Because meaning gives us sense, belonging gives us a sense of security, and a storyline gives us a sense of meaning through the various parts and phases of our life. I'm going to bring my co-host in here. Mention of the word story, Ian. Um, I'll bring you in. Why is a story so important to your... Ian works a lot with students. Why is a sense of story and meaning so important to your students? Well, I think what Oz just said there, that those three things, the, the meaning, belonging, and story, that those three things captured together, really. It's who we are as human beings. It gives us purpose, doesn't it? And it gives us a, you know, a, a reason to live. But that storyline captures our it does something to us about us that we we want to be part of a story. There's something beyond just the, our rational minds that we want to be, belong to something bigger than ourselves. You know that our you know kind of our lives are going to be part of history in some way, and you know be a part of something that that's great and grand. And you know even if we're little cogs in that, we want to see our our place in it. Mm. Yeah, Oz. In what way is the Great Quest our storyline? You mean what do you mean our? 
who you're referring to there. Western culture storyline. Oh, well, actually, the notion of story is far wider than just the West, the notion of journey. It's probably the deepest picture of our human life. We're on a journey. So, yes, in the West, we have the Odyssey and the Iliad and Pilgrim's Progress and Don Quixote and, you know, all sorts of books right down to On the Road and so on. So that idea of the journey and life as a journey is the deepest metaphor for life itself. And we want to make a sense of it all. That's why the book's so important. I've tried to write this for seekers. It's not written for Christians. It's written for people who are really serious about thinking, is there a way to think through the meaning of life? Yes. What makes a good seeker after truth, do you think? Well, the word seeker is often misused today. People use it to describe channel surfers or hoppers and shoppers and so on. People just browsing idly and spotting something, then they'll look at. That's not what I mean at all. Seekers and the first step in the great quest is a time for questions. Something strikes into their life, a crisis, a question, intellectual, emotional, whatever it is, and life is suddenly thrown into question. What they used to believe no longer satisfies, so they need to become a seeker to look for something more. And it's that seriousness of someone who now wants an answer because life's been thrown into question. That's what I'm writing for. Yes, what are some of the pointers you mention in the book to the existence of God, do you think? Well, I'd go back and say, what are the pointers that make people start to search? Because that's the crucial thing. It's a long time before people become believers, let alone meet the Lord himself. But obviously, people start to think, you know, Churchill used to talk about the big seven, the years 18 to 25. You think through the meaning of life. You think of your gifts and the job you're going to go to, the person you might marry, and things like that. Now, of course, in the modern world, the 18 to 25 is greatly expanded with delayed adolescence, can go on to the 40s for some people today. But then, of course, you have health crises. You have what Sultanistan calls the crowbar of history, grand events like the collapse of the Soviet Union. Many, many of the old line Marxists gave up. But I've been intrigued with what my mentor, Peter Berger, calls signals of transcendence. Now, as people are browsing along through life, something strikes them, an experience, which does two things. It punctures what they used to believe, and it points beyond what they used to believe to something else that would have to be true if the experience they've just experienced is to prove as meaningful as they believe it is. And I've got actually a book coming out a little later on signals of transcendence and 10 stories. Probably the most famous is C.S. Lewis. You know, he's so well known as a Christian writer that people forget he was a hard-bitten atheist. What tripped him up, he says, was being surprised by joy. He knew it wasn't pleasure. He knew it wasn't happiness. Joy punctured what he believed as an atheist, pointed beyond, and for 10 years he searched. So it was a long search, but it was the signal of transcendence that tripped him up and set him off. Yes, Ian, questions for Oz? Comments? Uh, so uh, I, don't, I don't know if I have any particular questions, but it's, it's just uh, heartwarming to hear 
kind of other Christians talk in this way in, in terms of just seeing you know, the, these the way that the world kind of fits together and who we are as human beings that in my experience with students in particular is that these questions aren't going away, that though that they're, people are still seeking the, to, to answer these questions. My, I think my big question is how as the church do we be the church in providing some of these key answers because I don't think we've done particularly well in doing that. Well, my book, I set out four phases of the search which thinking people pass through. It's written for seekers, but obviously someone who is a follower of Jesus now can read it and think back over their own lives and really ask themselves, have I got a good accounting of the way I've come to faith that could stand up to the questions that skeptics throw my way? So that's one advantage, reading it as a Christian. The other, of course, is if we understand how it is that seekers move along, then wherever we meet people, we can love them by listening to them and finding out where they are in the journey of life. And if we have a sense of how they move along, then you find out where they are, and we're only responsible to try to get them, you know, say rather mechanically, you see the journey of faith as one to a hundred. You might meet someone, say, in a plane or a five-minute conversation somewhere, and they're stuck. They're at 13, and they've been there forever, it seems. Well, the task is not to get them to 100. That may be a little difficult in an hour. But we can get them beyond 13 to 14, 15, 16. In other words, to get them moving. But to do that, you need to know how the journey of the seeker unfolds and where we can find people. Yes, where are people looking for answers today, Oz? Well, all sorts of odd places. You know, Alain de Botton, the Jewish atheist, he put on a big museum a few years ago called Art as Therapy. You know, I personally don't think that many people see the art world, and with a capital A, has all that much to say. It used to. You go back to Gauguin and so on, and some of the big questions of life are there in his paintings. But you look at what art has become, highly commercialized, or much of it totally nihilistic, like Marcel's Duchamp urinal and things like that. I don't think many people really hope that art will answer. Equally, sadly, philosophy. You know, philosophy is simply thinking about thinking. But there's good philosophy, good thinking about thinking, and there's bad philosophy. And you can see today that there aren't many answers from the world of philosophy. In fact, a great Polish philosopher, Leszek Kolokowski, he says after uh, 3,000 years, philosophy has absolutely no agreed answers. So there's no question, the deepest source of people's search are the philosophies of life, the worldviews, the religions, although, of course, one of the great worldviews is secularism. So in the book, I've tried to outline the three great families of faiths that have the deepest answers for us. How have the great faiths led to different cultures and civilizations, Oz? Well, that's a good point, because every civilization has a dynamic principle. And in almost all cases, it has been religion. So you think of Hinduism in India or Buddhism or Taoism and Confucianism in China. But in the same way, clearly, the Western civilization is the child of Christendom. So as I said, we owe a lot to the Greeks, philosophy, science, democracy, art, and various things. 
But that's nothing to what we owe, and Europe in particular was won by the gospel. And from the 5th to the 10th centuries, it was when the barbarian kingdoms were won that you had the rise of Christendom and what became Western civilization. So the greatest civilizations all have a faith at their core, for better or worse. And of course, in stage two, we've almost jumped to that now. The question is, as we look at these big answers to life, the grand worldviews, philosophies, religions, which one is the most adequate for the seeker's question? Which one is the most illuminating to answer the seeker's question? That's the great question on stage two. Yes. How does the Christian faith differ from the other faiths? Dramatically. Because you take, say, the Eastern religions, Hinduism and Buddhism, or the varieties of the New Age movement, they all go back to an impersonal ground of being, impersonal. So you use the word God, the small g, but always an impersonal God, Brahman or whatever. If you look at the secularist families of faiths, atheists, agnostics, naturalists, and so on, everything goes back to chance and determinism. But the third great family, which in the West, of course, is Judaism and the Christian faith, more broadly, Abrahamic have to include Islam, but the Western ones, Judaism, the Christian faith, go back to a personal, infinite God who is transcendent. In other words, God is the creator of the universe, outside of space, outside of time, but deeply personal. In other words, we're not talking about the unmoved mover, as Aristotle talked about. One Jewish rabbi calls God the most moved mover because God's stake in the universe is humanity made in his image. So you have a personal infinite God quite different from any other view of God in the other religions. What sort of evidence is there for Christianity? Well, that's the third stage you're jumping to. When someone's really looked, that second stage is comparative. You look at this, you look at that. Which one of all the possible answers would give me the best answer? But then the question comes, all right, this looks adequate. This looks highly illuminating, but is it true? In other words, that's what the lawyer calls due diligence or the philosopher verification and falsification and so on. All the person in the street checking it out. And that's a very important stage, especially today, because in our postmodern era, there's a death of truth. And people just skip that answer altogether, which is disastrous. So that stage is incredibly important. Now, you said, how do people do it? I think there are two broad ways. One is what I call the broad view of things. And an example of a seeker who came that way was G.K. Chesterton. And it was when all the pieces together began to fit into place. And if you've ever read his book, Orthodoxy, and his descriptions of that eureka moment, he talks about a big spike fitting a big hole and all the nuts and bolts clicking into place together. And he's so excited. It's a big picture verification. The Christian worldview fitted perfectly. The key fitted the lock. The other way is uh, the close-up way. You know, I was looking at it in a detailed way, and the best example of that is the famous conversion of C.S. Lewis. Well, as you know, C.S. Lewis got to the point he believed maybe there was an ideal, 
and then maybe a god in a theistic broad sense, abstract and so on, but no more. And then he was talking to one of the most hard-bitten atheists in Magdalen College, who suggested to Lewis he ought to check out the Gospels. What said Lewis? This hard-bitten atheist suggests so. He realized he was a literary critic, but he had never studied the Gospels the way he studied all the rest of the texts he he examined. And when he did so, he was horrified because people didn't really do justice to what he saw. They said, "Well, magnificent ethical teacher. Yes, that's there in the Gospels, but you also have horrifyingly tough-minded theological claims. How do you put the two together?" So he wrestles with that. Was Jesus a liar? Study the text. You can't say that. Was he a lunatic? Again, study the text. No, no. Was he a legend concocted by his followers? Lewis knew literary studies well, and he knew that wasn't right. Well, that left him with only one horrifying possibility: Jesus was who he said he was, Lord and God. And you, you remember his famous line that he, when he accepted that, he was the most reluctant convert in all England. But he was impelled to his knees by the truth of a close-up examination. Yes. In what sense is faith then rational? Well, faith is profoundly rational, but it's not only rational for a simple reason: we're not. If you think about ourselves, our minds are thoroughly rational. But we've got wills that decide things, and we've got emotions that feel things subjectively. So everything I describe in stage one, a time for questions; stage two, a time for answers; stage three, a time for evidences. Each of those stages is a hundred percent rational. But stage four isn't. It's not irrational, but it's more than rational because stage four is a time for Commitments. In other words, the whole person. And as I said, we're not just minds. Although some people almost act that sort of way as geeks. No, we're not just minds. We have wills and hearts, emotions. So stage four, time for commitments, is the whole person committing themselves to the Lord on the basis of this very rational and responsible journey towards faith that they've been on. Yes, I suppose my last question has to be: How does someone come to know and indeed love God? Well, stage four, a time for commitments, is when they truly come to know the Lord. Now, as you look back on the quest, the only other time when it seems though something supernatural, but with hindsight, were the signals of transcendence, stage one. But otherwise, the quest is: Are looking for the Lord or God if He's there? But when we actually commit ourselves to Him, convinced this is true, then we meet Him. But as Lewis says, it's absurd to think that we've done it all by ourselves. We look back and we see the Hound of Heaven, as Francis Thompson put it, has tracked us down and found us. So we've found the Lord, yes, but the Lord has found us.、Mm. Ian, final questions for Oz before we round up. I'm not, not sure. I think. <laughs> Anything in particular? I think it's just so profound, and I think one of the, the the big things is as individuals, how do we? You know, you might have a friend who is interested. You know, quite practically, just thinking is interested. You know, kind of in in what you believe because you're different. What advice do you give to people 
in that kind of situation where you've got someone who who doesn't really have a, a background in, in a church or any much of an idea of what a Christian is. They see you, they see there's something different. What advice do you give in that circumstance? Well, I think that's back even before stage one, as it were. We need to love people and then ask them questions and listen to them. You remember our Lord's words, the treasure of the heart. Everyone has something that means everything to them. That's what makes life worth living to them. Now, we've got to find out what that is. Is it something genuine you want to encourage? Or is it something actually spurious you want to win them away from because it'll lead nowhere? But we've got to love people, listen to people, ask questions out of real concern to find out where they are. What's the treasure of their heart? Now, if they're following something crazy, we find out where they are. And we don't preach to them, no, because if we share the good news at that stage, they're not in a bad situation. The good news is like water of a duck's back. The challenge then is to push them out to be further, to be true to what they say they believe, and we know it's not true. And if we do that gently with love, not just a logical argument, at some point they hit their heads against the wall. That's what basically Elijah did to the prophets of Baal. He doesn't say, come back to God or Israel will follow apart. He's one man against 850. He says, daringly, if Baal is God, follow Baal. But he can do that because he knows Baal is not God. And in the same way, the alternatives to faith in Jesus will always let people down. Mm-hmm. So find out what makes people tick by loving them, listening to them, and then gently push them out to be true to what they say they believe, which we know isn't true. And at a certain point, they'll turn around, what do you believe? And then we can share the good news. Mm. Os Guinness, thank you so much. His latest book from IVP, InterVarsity Press America, is called The Great Quest, Invitations to an Examined Life and a Sure Path to Meaning. And Oz and the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for your time. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Thank you so much. Great privilege to be with you down under. (laughs) Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.